so we're, we're going to talk about uh, uh, the, the biopsy pitfalls and limitations, things like that. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll try to get through a, a bunch of slides. So uh, dermatopathology didn't exist until the late 1700s. Uh, that's when the f word dermatopathology first uh, appeared. And in fact, some of the great dermatopathologists like Derrier and people like that that you've learned to recognize by their name, Gougereau and Carteau, things like that, they, they performed biopsies very, very sparingly. And in fact, they looked down upon it. Oh, well, you had to do a biopsy, you, you wimp, uh, uh, th things like that. Um, but over time, dermatopathology started to appear more and more in the literature. And uh, in fact, in the 1950s, uh, many universities here in America started having training programs in dermatopathology. And then in 1973, there was this big event that you should know about just to kind of be a more well-rounded dermatology professional. But uh, in 1973, there was this decision to go ahead and make it a board uh, in terms of the American Board of Medical Specialties, which is the people that recognize the different boards of medicine. So they went ahead and made it a board. So dermatopathology is its own board, and it's administered jointly by the American Academy of Dermatology and the, or the American Board of Dermatology and the American Board of Pathology. So it's a jointly administered board. And so there's two different ways to become a dermatopathologist in America. That's not necessarily the case everywhere else, but you have to be first a board certified dermatologist or a board certified general pathologist, and then you go on to do a fellowship in dermatopathology. That's what I did. So, so uh, this is the correct path, right, like this, and this is the incorrect path. Um, but uh, there's two different ways to become a dermatopathologist in the United States. That's not the case everywhere. I've lectured in Canada before. I lecture all over the place. Uh, I lectured in Canada before, and people were fascinated with the fact that I was a dermatopathologist that was a dermatologist. That was not, that's not allowed in Canada. Uh, I'm going to Australia in a couple months. It's not allowed in, in Australia. So you can only do this path right here. And that's unfortunate because, like I said, I think this is, the, the, for me, this is the better path. It makes me better at dermatology. It makes me better at dermatopathology because I actually see patients and do biopsies and understand the, the, the clinical pressures that you guys all face and things like that. Like, like I don't say dumb things like every pigmented lesion should be excised. That's what dumb pathologists say because they've never been in clinic. If I, if I excised every pigmented lesion, I'd still be working on patients from like 2007. So it, it doesn't really work that way. So, so for me, this is the better path, but that's not the case for everyone. So uh, every year there's more and more biopsies to look at for me. My business grew from like 16,000 when I joined CU. I, we were doing 16,000. And uh, last year we did like 49, 50,000. So every year I do more cases than I did the year before. This year I'm going to do 20% more than I did the year before. So uh, that's true of everyone throughout the United States. You notice that over the years, uh, biopsies keep going up, 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 up. Uh, all, all the time, and the diagnosis of melanoma also goes up. But really, the biopsy rate has gone up about two and a half fold, uh, and, and the melanoma rate has gone up about 2.4 fold. So it, it's not all true that we're always you know, getting more and more malignant every year. It, it's actually just that more and more things are being biopsied, in my opinion, at least. So uh, what is the general practice of dermatopathology? I think it would make you better consumers of dermatopathology if you kind of understood what we're doing in the laboratory all the time. And, and so you have this biopsy that you've performed, you've performed a shave or you've performed a punch or an excision or anything, and you send it to the lab, but what actually happens you know, after you put it in that little bottle of 10% uh, formalin, what actually happens to the specimen? Well, first it's accessioned. And certainly not everything that comes to our laboratory gets accessioned. We have certain requirements uh, that it actually pertain to the skin. We don't want to see your vast deferens specimen or something like that. Uh, so it actually has to pertain to the skin. A and then we have to have the form filled out and the, ID the bottle has to match actually the name on the pathology form, all that kind of thing. But then it's accessioned uh, and it's given a number and it's given to the grocer. And the grocer is a guy who takes that unmanageable piece of tissue, like a shave or a punch or an excision, and he cuts it or she cuts it into manageable parts of tissue. So they, they take the specimen, they divide it. So, for example, they might take a punch and they might uh, bisect the punch. They might take a shave and they might bisect or trisect the shave, or they might take an excision and they cut it into seven different parts here, kind of like a loaf of bread, kind of uh, down the middle of it. Uh, and so that's grossing, and that actually allows the tissue to be captured into pieces that can be put on a processor. If we just drop the whole hunk of tissue in there, it wouldn't work. It would never get processed correctly. So this increases the surface area uh, of the, the tissue and allows it to be pickled 
in the processor, which is next. So, so it goes in these little plastic cassettes for processing. And the processor is this big fancy machine. Uh, this thing must be sort of have to point it at certain things. This is the processor right here. And what it does is it, 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 it keeps washing the tissue in ever-increasing amounts of alcohol. So it starts with like 5% alcohol, ends with 100% absolute alcohol. And what that does is that takes the water out of the tissue. And then we have to remove the alcohol with xylene. And so at the end, you have this piece of, of beef jerky, sort of like, that's had all the water removed from it. That's actually what the processing does. And then we take this little piece of dehydrated tissue and we embed it in paraffin wax. So we push paraffin into all the spaces which used to contain water, we force paraffin in. And that makes this hard little nugget uh, trapped in paraffin that then we can cut. See the hard little nugget trapped in paraffin? Then we cut it and we cut it very, very thin with a microtome. And we cut it at three and a half to five microns thick, and that's so that light will pass through the specimen. If we cut it any thicker than that, we wouldn't be able to have the light pass through the specimen. So in the end, you're looking at this little tiny three and a half micron section of something that started out three and a half millimeters or four millimeters or five millimeters in size. So you're only looking at a portion of the overall sampling. And then you put it on something called an auto stainer, and, and we use hematoxylin and eosin. And if you've been in the other room over there, hematoxylin is purple and, and eosin is red. And it makes this nice little purple and red uh, type of stain that you look at uh, under the microscope. And then your pathologist uh, renders a diagnosis. And this is what hopefully what they see. They see like a purple epidermis up here. And they see a, see a pink dermis down here. And you can see things like hairs and sebaceous glands and things like that. You can see tumors, all those kinds of things. Then we render a diagnosis, but we actually usually dictate a diagnosis. And then somebody goes on to change it into a pathology report. And then we ultimately end up signing that pathology report. And that all happens over a few hours, you know, usually. So um, uh, you have all this big chain of dependency. You have all these different people. For example, I employ 29 people in my little laboratory. So, so it, it, I'm dependent upon a whole bunch of different people, the grocer, the embedder, the logger, all those different things, the transcriptionist. So there's all these different steps. And so, of course, you know, anytime you have this chain of dependency, if one person fails in their job, then the whole chain breaks, you know, everything breaks down. And so that's something to be aware of. There's a lot more steps involved in, your, in, your, in the processing of your tissue than you probably ever imagined. And so there's a lot more hands involved and there's a lot more potential for little mistakes along the way, such as, you know, misidentifying the tissue or so cutting the wrong tissue onto the wrong slide. Things like that are, are very disastrous. So that, that's why it's important to provide good insight and accurate information. Uh, some people wonder why we call your office and say, well, you said here it was a punch, but it actually is a shave. And, and people think, oh, gosh, you know, why is Dr. High's laboratory so, you know, what are they, a bunch of Nazis? Why are they on my case all the time? But what we're trying to do is be very, very careful because if we see something that's obviously punch-shaped, and you mark the biopsy, check the box, shave, it may not seem like much of a big deal to you, but we're very, very concerned because thousands of specimens are going through the laboratory, and we want to make very, very clear that that actually matters. Do you know that the American, or the College of Anatomic Pathologists, it's called CAP, uh, they're the national accrediting body for, for laboratories. They'll allow, what, what, what percentage do you think they'll allow in a laboratory to be misidentified? 4%. So they'll, they'll tolerate up to a 4% misidentification. I'll tolerate a 0% misidentification. I go ballistic on people if they misidentify tissue. I really get upset and, and impress upon them how important it is. But they'll tolerate up to a 4% uh, misidentification. Uh, so, so you know, that, that's pretty uh, impressive. Most of you probably do 1,000 biopsies a year if I allowed a 4% uh, misidentification rate, you'd be calling a bunch of people to tell them, oh, you know, actually, I told you it was basal cell. It, it actually was a nevus. It was, it was uh, yeah, you know, the guy before me, it was his basal cell, you know, the, that kind of thing. So uh, keep in mind that we don't tolerate 4% misidentification, but uh, the, the College of Anatomic Pathologists does. So it tells you that it does happen from, from time to time. So that, that's why we, we really prefer that you, you actually give a good impression and a good description of what the lesion is. Because if I look down and I see a nevus and, and you've described a rash, then I know something's obviously wrong. But uh, you know, if, if I look down and I see a nevus and you've described a rule out basal cell carcinoma, that might not actually be a mistake. 
So the more information you can give uh, the dermatopathologist, the more likely they are to pick up on things that are wrong. Other things that you never want to do really are put multiple specimens in the same bottle. It's getting harder and harder to defend things like curetting a pigmented lesion. And that's exactly why I already mentioned we, you know, mismarking a shave, a punch, or an excision, it might seem like, gosh, why is he nagging? Why is he ragging on us so much? Well, I'm just trying to make sure that the tissue that I'm looking at is actually your patient's tissue. And it's not designed to sabotage your productivity or pull your nurse from the room or anything like that. It's just designed to ensure that we're giving you the best results all the time. And there's actually literature, uh, you know, not even very recent literature, uh, about what is the amount of, of information that you should provide with regard to every specimen. And some people came up with the five Ds to get the most from biopsies, but I think you can even reduce it further to the three Ds. A description or what was done, so either a punch or shave or a description of the rash the diameter, size, or extent of the rash or the lesion, and then the diagnosis. If you're providing less than that, you're, you're probably going to get in trouble if I get in trouble. So what I mean is there's this perception that if, if you know, there's a dermatopathology error, then it's the dermatopathologist's fault. But what I would contend is that if you're providing really crappy information, you're going to get in trouble too. Because if I'm a clever attorney, and keep in mind I have a law degree, if I'm a clever attorney, then I'm going to actually try to actually envelop you in the lawsuit too. I'm going to try to envelop you and your, your supervising doctor and everything else by saying, well, well, why didn't you write down that it was a, 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 you know, a rash on his upper extremities and lower extremities? Or why didn't you write down that it was a three millimeter or three centimeter lesion and you did a three millimeter punch biopsy? Were you really pressed for time that day? Because there's published literature that you should be providing this information. Uh, why, why did you choose not to? And so I'll, I'll drag you into the problem too, and you don't want that. So the, the more information you provide, the less likely you are to be enveloped and, and entangled in the air and things like that. Because in the end, what the plaintiff's attorney wants is he wants money. So if he can take thirty dollars or $40,000 from you and $200,000 from, from the dermatopathologist, then that's $240,000 he didn't have. Uh, whereas if he, he, you know, if he only settles with the dermatopathologist, then he only makes $200,000. He'd rather make the $230,000, $240,000 and, and entangle a whole bunch of people in the mistake. So it's always your responsibility to secure a representative biopsy. That's very, very, very important because now, nowadays uh, specimens are getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And that's been proven, actually, that specimens have gotten smaller over time. And, of course, we're assuming that the biopsy is representative of the overall condition. If I'm looking at a portion of the specimen or a portion of the lesion, there's the possibility that it doesn't actually represent the whole of the entire lesion. And that's why we got to be very, very careful about partial samplings uh, of pigmented lesions, things of that nature, because it may not be melanoma in the biopsy I'm looking at, but the process as a whole may have melanoma somewhere within it, and that's an important thing to keep in mind. Because you always want to think about crap in, crap out. That's what we say all the time as pathologists. If you put a bad sampling into the, spe into the machine, you don't expect to get a good result out. So you always have to think, am I putting in my best best specimen because that's going to give me the best result in the end. So this is a basal cell carcinoma. If you've been in the other room over there, we've seen it. This is a squamous cell carcinoma, but note they both grow from the dermoepidermal junction up here down into the dermis. So, so both those types of non-melanoma skin cancer grow down into the dermis, and that's where they actually cause a problem. You know, if they, if they weren't growing down, we wouldn't really much care if they were cancers or not. But here's uh, what, what the problem is in partial shaves, and you guys all probably get reports from now and, now and then that say, you know, the specimen is transected or something like that. What they mean is here you have a specimen that contains only the upper aspects of the epidermis. In fact, the, the clinician hasn't even broken down into the dermis down here. So there's really no way to know if there's a basal cell or a squamous cell because basically what you're looking at is a specimen like this. So there's really no way to know what's underneath it. And in fact, I had a very uh, seasoned MD clinician call me once, and she said, well, what I really wanted to know, Dr. High, was what was beneath the biopsy. What do you think was down beneath the biopsy? And, and I, I, I looked at the phone like, is this person for real? How would I know what was underneath the biopsy? So, so if you want to know what's underneath the biopsy, uh, the, then you have to have ESP, you have to be Nostradamus or something like that. Because all I'm going to be able to look at is whatever you've encaptured within the sampling. And so uh, how confident would you 
be if you were the dermatopathologist here that there isn't a basal cell or squame there. You really wouldn't know. And so sometimes we have no choice to say, well, it's probably an actinic keratosis, but you've transected the epidermis, so I don't really know. So if you had a high degree of suspicion that this is a basal cell or a squamous cell carcinoma, this biopsy doesn't really exclude that possibility. So you're going to have to go back and do a deeper biopsy. If you really didn't think it was, then you might follow the area for a few months or something like that. But if you really thought there was a basal cell or squame there, you're going to have to go back and do it again. And sometimes we see punch biopsies. This looks like an atypical nevus, doesn't look like a melanoma. Uh, it just looks like an atypical nevus, but it's a small punch biopsy. And so the person went back and, and did an excision of the lesion, and in the excision there's melanoma. You can see the pagetoid spread of melanocytes up here. So, so really the person punched a little portion of a pigmented lesion and got a diagnosis of an atypical nevus, but when they actually provided the entirety of the specimen, then it was very obvious that there was melanoma in situ there. And that probably happens a few times a year. That's one of the main reasons that we ask for, for atypical nevi to be removed is, is because we really don't know to what degree the specimen we're looking at is representing the overall process. And unfortunately, attorneys, plaintiff's attorneys, are going to know this. They're going to find quickly articles like this. This is a, a pretty famous article written by Ning, NG, uh, and they looked, at, uh, they looked at punch biopsies of pigmented lesions, and they found that a punch biopsy of a pigmented lesion was 16 times more likely to lead to a misdiagnosis than was an excisional sampling or a big saucerization or anything like that. So, so uh, people are going to find that, and then they're going to start questioning you about, well, why did you think a punch biopsy was a good idea? Why did you think that? Because they're going to try to start shaking you down for, for some, of the, some of the responsibility, some of the, the liability in the, in the matter. So you want to be really, really careful that you can defend the answer and say, well, the reason I did a punch is because the entire lesion was five millimeters across, and I did a four millimeter punch, and that's 80% of the lesion. Uh, so so the, that, that, there's no problem there. That's a good sampling. But if you did a three millimeter punch and the lesion is three and a half centimeters across, that's gonna, you know, people are gonna lay people on the jury and things are gonna be like, wow, that doesn't sound like a very good idea to me. Uh, so, so you wanna be careful uh, about those kinds of things. Uh, because again, like if we take a four millimeter punch biopsy and we bisect it, and that's how we would embed it. We'd embed the two halves looking out at, at, the, at the dermatopathologist. By volume, I'm only looking at about one five hundredth of the entire specimen. So I'm making my entire diagnosis based on about one five hundredth of the entire sampling. And, and who knows to what degree the sampling, let's say the punch biopsy is only a portion of the lesion, then it, it gets worse from there. So you want to be very, very respectful and cognizant of the fact that, that you know, you're only looking at a very small amount of the specimen uh, relative to the overall size of the lesion. So uh, how much of the true surgical margin do you think is evaluated in a typical excision? So in a typical excision, we bread loaf it into pieces. How much of the margin do you think we're actually inspecting? Somebody's really fast on their phone. Oh, now people are. Okay, that's good. So the right answer, I'll just tell you, is you're looking at less than 1% of the margin. So actually, the minority here actually got the right answer. So let's look at that for a minute. So you have this excision, you know, and let's pretend it's five centimeters across from tip to tip. And you divide it into seven pieces of tissue over here. I think there's seven. Yeah, there's, they divide it into seven pieces of tissue. And, and you assume all these things are regarding the perimeter of the biopsy. And, you know, you can do the math yourself. I already did it. Uh, but it ends up you're inspecting about one twenty-three hundredth of the actual margin. So, so when you get that report back and it says completely excised, you know, things, things like that, really they've only inspected about 1 2300th, or let's call it 1 2500th for just to round up. We've only looked at 1 2500th of the margin. And so this is what Fred Mose decided was ridiculous. He said, you know, that's not very good. And that's how they invented micrographic surgery where you look at 100% of the margin, but in typical bread loaf excisions, you're looking at maybe one twenty-five hundredth 
of the overall lesion. So, so it's the way we do things, and, and that, that's fine. You know, it would be, like I just said, it's impossible to excise every pigmented lesion in your clinic, and I know that as a dermatologist. It's impossible to mose every single case of skin cancer or, or anything like that. The cost would be astronomical to do everything by mose. But you have to be cognizant of it, and that's why we always give you a margin measurement. In my, in my laboratory, we always measure the margin, the nearest margin, we'll say. The basal cell carcinoma extends within 0.63 millimeters of the lateral surgical edge. What we're trying to tell you without alarming the patient or anything is that if your margin is only 0.63 millimeters and I'm only looking at 1 2500th of the overall lesion, who knows about the other edges of the margin? So that's why we like to see those three and five millimeter margins on, on basal cell carcinoma and melanoma in situ and things like that because we assume if the margin's that good, then it's probably that good all the way around. And if your margin's narrow in some place, well then the odds are it's narrow in other places too. So, so that's why people are trying to move towards giving you actual numbers and things like that so you can make a judgment call as to how, whether you want to go back or not or just follow the area closely. And then you always want to be careful about choosing the right technique. You know, uh, A shave might be inadequate if you really, really, really think for sure, I'm, I've got a strong suspicion that this is melanoma, then maybe that is a person that you should go ahead and schedule for an excisional biopsy or something like that. If you don't have much concern to that, it would be an unlikely event, then that probably is the right uh, situation for a shave or something like that. Uh, a punch biopsy is used sometimes for lesions that be, can be encaptured really, really well in a punch or, or things where you suspect that there's a dermal process going on. That might be a good situation for a punch, things like granuloma annulari, things like that. Uh, a SNP biopsy is good for pedunculated lesions. Saucerization, I do a lot of saucerizations. I'm a big fan of saucerizations, I think they're great. But what I really mean is a true saucerization, like really, really moving down into the dermis and then coming back out not like a little you know, superficial tangential shave or something like that. But I, I certainly, as a dermatologist, understand that you can't you know, shut your clinic down to do excisional biopsies all day long. But a saucerization is exactly that. A saucerization should look like, you know, like a saucer. It shouldn't look like a plate. It should look like a saucer. So uh, saucerization is a great thing and very defensible if it's done correctly, very hard to defend if it actually is just a superficial shave. So here's the various techniques, incision, excision, all those things, punch, you all know all those things. Um, but you, you can't, um, you know, everybody wants things in, in simple, simple rules, but simple rules break down. So one rule that we always used to teach the family practitioners was always punch the thickest part of the lesion. Everybody used to say that. And so this person presented, this is a real lawsuit, it really actually happened. And, and so the family practitioner said, well, they always said to punch the thickest part of the lesion and this is the thickest part of the lesion, and so they did a punch biopsy here, and they left this giant pseudopod of melanoma right here, and they got a diagnosis of an intradermal nevus, and they allowed the patient to continue with this melanoma on the body. Now that seems silly to us, because we're all dermatology professionals, and we would, we would realize that this is actually with the melanoma over here, and this is the pre-existing nevus. But, but that's why simple rules break down, and so when people ask me for a simple rule, I say, well, I can't give you a simple rule, what I can do is try to impart knowledge to you such that you can make a good decision, but simple rules are, won't, won't, won't work in the real world. They'll break down too quickly. So again, this person went on to die of their adjacent melanoma and they had a biopsy done of the intradermal nevus because somebody taught them a simple rule and didn't mention, uh, well, you know, this rule occasionally breaks down. You're going to have to make exceptions to it, things of that nature. So saucerization is a great technique. Saucerization has almost the same diagnostic. This is a deep shave or saucerization. This is an excision. You get almost the same diagnostic information. Saucerization is very, very useful, but when you go to shaves and punches of pigmented lesions, the amount of, of information that you're getting starts to break down uh, considerably. Same thing in this chart. Uh, an excision and a saucerization had nearly the same diagnostic utility, whereas shave and punch had lesser diagnostic utility. So then for certain situations, you might vary your technique. So 
this is mycosis fungoides, uh, cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, and it often presents as these dispigmented areas, maybe macular, maybe small, thin plaques, underneath the double protected sites of the skin. The double protected areas are the common sites you see this. And so this would be something that you would mostly consider, well, it's a rash, right? It's kind of a rash. It's, it's a skin cancer, but it's a skin cancer that presents as a rash. And so you might think, oh, well, a punch biopsy is probably the way to go. Um, but this is actually what mycosis fungoides looks like under the microscope. These are all the little cancerous lymphocytes homing in on the epidermis. This is a really, really easy case. This is like a slam dunk for a dermatopathologist. There's no problem here. And even probably doing a punch would probably get you the right answer in this situation. But sometimes cases of mycosis fungoides are harder. There's fewer cells, uh, and you need a broader amount of the dermal epidermal junction to look at. So mycosis fungoides is one case where even though it seems like an inflammatory condition where you might do a, a punch biopsy, actually sometimes a shave is better because it gives you more of the dermal epidermal junction to look at. Uh, so mycosis fungoides is one situation. If you really thought that might be the diagnosis, then you might consider a big, broad shave to provide the dermatopathologist with a broad uh, sampling of the dermal epidermal junction to look at. But in the end, you always are going to have to correlate it with the clinical situation. And if you don't get the diagnosis back that you suspect, it would probably be a good situation to go ahead and call the dermatopathologist and say, I was really, really, really concerned. Are you sure that that's not uh, the case? Because as I spoke uh, about yesterday, the, uh, the delay from, uh, from the onset of the, uh, of the disease to the diagnosis is usually about six years and greater than three biopsies to get to the right result. So the next special condition is bullous pemphigoid. For, so to evaluate for bullous pemphigoid by direct immunofluorescence, which of the following is true? The biopsy should be taken from the center. The biopsy should be taken from the oldest lesion. The biopsy should be placed in a small amount of saline or Michelle's media. The biopsy should be taken from photoexposed skin, or none of the above are true. Okay, the majority wins on this. So direct immunofluorescence specimens have to go in either nor, uh, normal saline or Michelle's media. If you put a direct immunofluorescence specimen in formalin, even for a little while, it ruins the test. You can't do it. So bolus pemphigoid is, of course, the most common autoimmune bolus condition. So, so just odds are you're not going to really see a pemphigus very often in your practice. But you will, if you, especially if you work with older people, you are going to see uh, bolus pemphigoid. It's the number one autoimmune bolus condition, and it's most common in elderly people with a lot of morbid morbidities. It pre presents as these very, very tense vesicles. They often begin between the toes, on the feet, on the ankles. They often begin the axilla. That's where this picture was taken. And they have these big, tense blisters uh, that are filled and filled with eosinophils under the microscope. And this is what you see in a biopsy of bolus pemphigoid, you see this bulla developing, this vesicle right here, and you see inflammatory cells, including eosinophils, uh, in the vicinity. And this is a very, very itchy condition, usually. Here's another picture. You can see tons and tons of eosinophils. We looked at eosinophils in the other room yesterday. They're these bright red cells. They, they absorb eosin, the red dye. And so this is a very, very itchy condition, and this is diagnostic of bolus pemphigoid. But one thing you can do in bolus pemphigoid uh, to help make the diagnosis is it's a real, real hard diagnosis to make if you try to do a punch biopsy in the center of the vesicle because you can see what happens. If you try to do a punch biopsy here, uh, you push your punch down, you cut the epidermis off, it starts floating off, into the, or it's retained in the punch, or it floats off in the bottle, or anything else, and all the dermatologist has to look at is this, this piece of dermis right here. Uh, and it gives you the wrong result. So the best thing to do, and the thing that I actually do as a savvy uh, dermatologist, dermatopathologist, is just to go ahead and shave off the entire blister. So that, that works really, really slick. The dermatopathologist gets to see the, the vesicle, he gets to see the underlying dermis, so you just saucer out the entire blister. You begin before the blister, and then you, you, oops, you begin before the blister over here, you finish after the blister, and you just put the whole thing in the bottle. You actually just see it floating in there. That's the slickest, most accurate way to make the diagnosis of bullous pemphigoid. And then what you do if you want to do direct immunofluorescence studies, so you go ahead and, and shave the blister off, and then you do a direct immunofluorescence study about 5 to 10 millimeters away from the blister. You don't try to do it in the blister because, again, the epidermis will come off and you won't have a good study. You go ahead and move 5 to 10 millimeters away, and that's where you do your direct immunofluorescence study for bolus pemphigoid. And bolus pemphigoid is the number one autoimmune bolus condition, so it's actually the thing that you would probably come in contact with most often. 
immunofluorescent studies have to go in either Michelle's media or in normal saline. If, they, if you put them in normal saline, then you just put a couple drops of normal saline on the tissue in a urine cup or something like that, and you just go ahead and send it to the laboratory immediately. It needs to arrive within 24 hours. If you have something called Michelle's media, which we keep at our laboratory in a separate, distinct vial. So this is our formalin biopsy. Our formalin cup looks like a, you know, this size with a white top. We specifically and purposely choose to have our Michelle's media in a different sized uh, specimen vial and with a different cap so that everybody knows immediately that it's Michelle's media. The worst thing, I think, is when you have the same size bottle with the same cap and you have your nurse trying to figure out which one's the Michelle's and which one's the formalin and, and things like that. And again, if you put it in formalin, it ruins the biopsy. So it, it's just a simple, nice thing to have two different cups with two different sizes and two different caps, and then everybody knows which one is for your immunofluorescence and which one is for your routine biopsies. Another thing to, to be aware of is, you know, most of the time we deal with the epidermis or dermis, but sometimes we're concerned about paniculitis, inflammation of the fat. And the subcutis is the third layer of the cake, right? You have an epidermis, a dermis, and then the subcutis is way down deep. And so we don't tend to think about it as much in dermatology as other things, but sometimes you're worried about erythema nodosum, erythema neurotum, uh, subcutaneous paniculitis of one kind or another. And so you need to get down into the fat to make a good diagnosis. Here's a person with erythema nodosum. They're the right age. They look very, very enthusiastic about wearing shorts and things like that. Um, and they're usually very, very concerned because they have these tender, painful erythematous nodules on their lower extremities. And it's usually a woman uh, in, in their, their, their middle uh, years of their life. And, the, and it's a very, very debilitating disease for that reason. Here's an example of erythema nodosum, these poorly defined subcutaneous erythematous nodules on the leg. And so you're going to want to go ahead and get down deep because all the changes in the erythema nodosum are down here in the fat. And what's funny is, and, and this happens from, from dermatologists, not from PAs or nurse practitioners, this happens from dermatologists, is that I get biopsies, shave biopsies like this, shaped like this, and they say rule out erythema nodosum. Heck what I know. <laughs> It's a, it's a disorder of the fat. So, so your shave biopsy isn't going to tell me at all if they have erythema nodosum or erythema endorotum or anything else. That's just a, an amateurish mistake. So if you're really suspecting uh, a paniculitis and you don't see fat going into the bottle, you don't see dangling, shaking fat as you put it in the bottle, there's not going to be any way for the dermatopathologist to make that diagnosis or exclude that diagnosis. Nobody's going to have any idea. You just did a biopsy for absolutely no reason which you don't want to do. So all the changes of erythema nodosum are way, way down here in the fat. So as you put the specimen in the bottle, you want to see fat dangling uh, from the sampling. Uh, you really couldn't rule out paniculitis in this because you don't really ever get to the fat. The biopsy terminates. Looks like it's the top of a cyst, probably, if I had to guess. But the, the biopsy would be exactly that. It'd be an educated guess. I wouldn't have any idea. Uh, here's a biopsy that I did. That thing's honking one centimeter long. So, so you know, I really hubbed that thing and probably went beyond the hub uh, to get the biopsy uh, that, that, I, that I really want. That's a heck of a biopsy. There's no way if, if my dermatopathologist tells me he's not sure uh, if that's a paniculitis or not, I'm going to tell him he's crazy because he's, he's got more fat than he does dermis there uh, to inspect. So there's a way to do this if you're ever concerned that you're not getting deep enough. It's called a stacked punch. So what you first do is you get a nice big old punch like a six millimeter and you make the borehole. And you go ahead and make a, you know, you hub that and you take that out. And then if you're concerned that you don't have fat still, then what you do is you go ahead and do a stacked punch where you grab a smaller punch like a four and you put it in the hole of the six millimeter and you go down and get your fat. So you certainly don't want to hit bone down here. That would be bad form. Uh, but you do want to make sure that you have some, some, some fat uh, there. And it's perfectly acceptable to do a stacked biopsy like that. People will know what to do with that. Uh, here's a case, rule out alopecia. So how on earth would I be able to, you know, the person basically like microtomed the epidermis off of, of the surface. How would I honestly know if there was an alopecia there or not? Because the hair is way down here. I wouldn't have any clue at all. So you got to stop and think if your biopsy is reasonable. 
so the new thing for alopecia is to go ahead and do these vertical and horizontal sections. And we've seen that in the other laboratory over there, the little course I've been running. We, we've been looking at both horizontal sections, which are or vertical sections, I mean, which are the, the classic way to look at the skin. And then we've been looking at horizontal sections. It's like we go ahead and Ginsu the specimen like this, and we look down onto the hair. And this is what you see. You know, one way you see the classic hairs in the classic shape with the epidermis at the top and the dermis beneath it and the hairs down here. That's a classic vertical section. But the new thing to do is horizontal sections where you look down onto the hair. And I've shown the people in the other room how that can be of utility. Sometimes things that look like not very impressive in vertical sections look very, very impressive in horizontal sections. So it is a useful thing. And at my laboratory, we can do it off one single piece of tissue. So we go ahead and we do it off one single punch. Some laboratories, they make you do two different punches, one for vertical sectioning, one for horizontal sectioning. We're able to get it all done off one punch. But again, what you're looking at in, in vertical sections is different from horizontal sections. So when you go to dermatology meetings and people are talking about horizontal sections, what they're talking about is this right here, looking down onto the hair. And sometimes it looks more impressive that way than it really does in traditional vertical sections. Another little tip is always leave some hair on the, on the biopsies. Anybody ever told you guys that before? Leave a little bit of hair. So instead of shaving the hair with a razor blade really, really close, clip it with scissors. Because this allows the, 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 the uh, laboratory staff to always identify where the epidermis is really, really reliably. Because they can see the little tiny stubby hairs. And you'll get a better, better result because they'll embed it correctly. They'll process the tissue correctly. So it's actually better to leave little tiny stubby short hairs than it is to shave it off flat because then they're a little bit certain, uh, less certain about how to order, orient the specimen when they go to do their work. Uh, lymphoid proliferations, anytime you see like an older person with a big old purple goomba like this, lymphoma is gonna enter the diagnosis. Lymphoma is more common on the head and neck, middle-aged to older patients, presents as kind of this purplish, violaceous uh, lesion. That lymphoma would be a key consideration here, for sure. But when you're biopsying a lymphoid thing, you have to be very, very careful about crush artifacts. So crush artifact is where you squeeze the specimen too tightly with the forceps as you try to wrestle it out of the punch biopsy hole. And that's very, very much a problem in lymphoid proliferations because the lympho lymphocytes are very, very fragile. And so, so what we often see sometimes is we see specimens that are impossible to interpret because all the cells have been squished and distorted and crushed. So you want to be very, very ginger, particularly if you think it's a lymphoma. You want to be very, very ginger as you pull the punch specimen out of that hole that you're not crushing it with the, with the forceps. Because we've had cases where, you know, I've said I can't interpret this because of the crush artifact. And the, the person has not believed me. They've requested a second opinion. And the, and the consultant says, I can't interpret this because it's been crushed. So there's no choice but to go back and biopsy the patient a second time. So nearly all tissue removed from a human being should be submitted for analysis. Uh, they, they do, from time to time, uh, find melanoma and things that were suspected to be seborrheic keratoses. So these were suspected to be seborrheic keratoses, and melanoma was found in, in about 1% of cases that were thought clinically to be seborrheic keratoses. So that's why we say all tissue that's removed from a human being should be processed. Here's, uh, uh, here's an example of uh, an interesting phenomenon. So when you send your specimen in, a person called a grocer decides if it's a punch biopsy, they decide if they're going to divide it this way or this way. So imagine that you had something that was a seborrheic keratosis and a melanoma growing together, and you went ahead and just by fortune you grossed it this way. You divided it in half this way. When you look down upon the tissue, you would see a melanoma over here, and you would see a seborrheic keratosis over here. Does everybody, is everybody capable of imagining that in their mind? You would go from this piece, you would open it up like this, and you would see the melanoma on half the tissue, and you would see the seborrheic keratosis on half the tissue. Imagine that just purely by happenstance, your $14 an hour grocer decides to divide the tissue like this. They divide it like that. Then you look at the tissue, and all you would see is the seborrheic keratosis. You wouldn't see melanoma at all. Does that make sense? 
So this is why, really, why you think it's your dermatopathologist giving you a result. It's actually your $14 an hour grossing technician who just made a decision that will impact upon the result of, uh, of the patient, the patient's life, really. So this is why grossing can even impact your, your, your analysis. And you see that in this case right here. This is the same specimen. This is one portion of the same specimen. You see only a seborrheic keratosis. And if you cut into the other half of tissue, then you see the melanoma. So uh, very, very important to always be like, hmm, gosh, I really thought that was a melanoma. Maybe I should have called the, the dermatopathologist and get them to cut deeper into the block. Uh, and, and then skin tags, you know, every once in a while you get a, a skin tag back and you send it in because you know that all human tissue should be sent into laboratory. And sometimes they find malignancies in the skin tag. And here's a plain old skin tag right here. This is just plain old boring skin tag. Here's a basal cell carcinoma that we looked at in the other room over there that looks exactly like a skin tag, right? It looks loose and floppy. You can imagine what it looked like on the body. And then it has basal cell carcinoma on the inside of it. So nobody saw that one coming. Uh, here's another thing that looks like a skin tag. Looks like this pedunculated lesion was snipped from the skin. And there's a huge melanoma inside the, 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 the uh, uh, structure that looks otherwise like a skin tag. So this was submitted as a rule out tag. It ended up being a 34-year-old woman with a melanoma. She actually ended up dying. This woman's dead uh, uh, from her melanoma that looked like a skin tag. So uh, all tissue, I think, should go in a bottle and all tissue should be sent. I mean, there might be rare exceptions if you've seen the patient for skin tags for 30 years and you've been snipping them only from the axilla and everything else. You might make a rare exception, but I really think almost all tissue should go to laboratory. And then you want to be aware of, of things like um, formalin, excuse me, uh, formalin uh, freezes. Formalin does freeze if it gets cold enough. And so what, that ha what happens is that all the tissue freezes and you get all this freeze artifact in the tissue. So how this is a problem, this might be, not be a problem where you practice, but where I practice, this is a problem if people put these things uh, on the outside of their building in Colorado and in the wintertime they're putting all their specimens into this box and then the box freezes. So you want to be really, really careful if you live in a, a colder environment that your box to, for the laboratory to pick up specimens is someplace that's warm enough to prevent freezing because if those specimens freeze, it really impacts my ability to render a good diagnosis. And then everybody's always worried about turnaround time. You're going to have all these people come in your lab or in your, in your office all the time being like, my lab has the shortest turnaround time. You need improved turnaround time. Um, um, that's all, you know, well and good, and you certainly don't want results that take like two or three weeks or something like that, because that does look bad, except for special cases, I guess, if it had to go for consultation or something. But it's well, well established in all other aspects of, of medicine that if you move too quickly, you end up making errors. That if I push you too hard, if I flog you too hard to see patients, you're going to start cutting corners. You're going to start doing things in a, in a short, shoddy matter, uh, manner, and you're going to make errors. And that's always the case. That's the case in emergency medicine. That's the case in anything. So why would it not be the case in pathology? So if, if your lab's moving really, really, really too quickly, they're making bad choices and things like that. And, and you, you don't want them to be doing that. And, because again, their success is your success and their failures will be your failures as well. Uh, it's really, really erroneous to think, oh, well, if there's a lawsuit or something like that, it'll only be the dermatopathologist that gets in trouble. In fact, we just, you know, as attorneys, we know to just throw everybody against the wall. Just, just see who sticks. Just start naming people right and left. Just name them all. You know, they have people that they pay $7 an hour to just go through the record and highlight people. They just highlight people with names. They highlight respiratory therapists, MDs, PAs, NPs. They just highlight names with initials after them. And then those people get named in the lawsuit, whether they have anything to do with it or not. That's going to sort itself out over time. But they're just going to name everybody in the lawsuit. So every time you get a pathology report, uh, you, you want to just kind of run through uh, a few things. Is it the correct patient? Is the name correct? Uh, does the technique match? Did I say it was a shave? Did I perform a shave? So, so these are things that I do every time. I just make sure, yeah, I performed a shave and the laboratory received a shave. That sounds good. Everything's good. Was the history and clinical information accurate? Sometimes what you tell your MA or whatever to put on the path form isn't what they actually put on the path form. And sometimes it might impact the diagnosis. Like if I'm looking for a lymphoma and I know 
the patient has a history of a systemic lymphoma and I didn't tell the dermatopathologist that, that might be a critical piece of information to know. So, so I always make sure that everything that I told the medical assistant to put on the form actually ends up on the form. And then the last thing I do is I ask myself, is this the result that I anticipated? Yeah, it is. I thought it was a basal cell. I did a shave. And every, so that's a good check. Everything looks good there. Uh, but you always want to be aware that no pathology report is, is a stone tablet or a burning bush. Uh, you know, they're, they're, everybody can make mistakes. I can make mistakes. Other dermatopathologists can make mistakes. The, I told you about the 4% misidentification that's allowed by the, by the accrediting body uh, of the uh, uh, of the College of Anatomic Pathologists. So everybody can make mistakes and there's 29 people in my laboratory who can all impact upon the diagnosis. So you always want to ask yourself careful questions. So here's an example of a laboratory report and I blocked out who it is and everything like that. It's a different lab in Colorado, not my lab. And so they, they, they were looking at two punch biopsies and they even said uh, that it's two biopsies from the same lesion, left heel midline, left heel medial. The, the doctor even was aware that it was two punch biopsies from the same lesion, and he diagnosed a moderately atypical nevus and a severely atypical nevus. And so this, this dermatologist in Denver didn't do anything about it urgently. He just told the patient, oh, come back sometime and we'll cut out your atypical nevus. But it wasn't a melanoma and everything's okay. And then the patient came and saw me, and this is their lesion. And, and, and what I'm trying to contend is that if you get any diagnosis except melanoma for this, it's wrong. <laughs> so you have to have some clinical confidence. This is a melanoma. There's no atypical nevus that would be this size that would look like this on the heel. And so if any other diagnosis comes back from the laboratory, I'm going to pick up the phone and be like, you know, hold on. Did you understand that those are from the same lesion? They're, they're not two different lesions on the heel or anything like that. They're from the same lesion. So, uh, and again, again, this person had been walking around for almost a year with a melanoma on their heel um, because they said, oh, you know, I haven't gotten around to going and getting cut off or anything like that. Uh, so this is a little bit of a medically, a medical legally sensitive matter uh, here. So you always want to uh, look for the diagnosis. You always want to look for the comments. You always want to look for the gross description. Make sure that it describes, you know, if you did a shave 14 millimeters long and you look at the, at the gross description and it says it was 0.5 by 0.5 by 0.1, you'd be like, hmm, that's weird. It was a huge whopping shave. How could it be 0.5 by 0.5 by 0.1? So there's a lot of information here. And then one, my, one of my pet peeves is, is reports that don't have a microscopic description because I, I can actually use that since I'm a dramatic pathologist and as I've been pointing out in the other room, you can actually glean a lot of information about whether eosinophils are present, uh, things like that from the microscopic description. So if, I getting, if I'm getting bad microscopic descriptions or canned microscopic descriptions that don't really match the tissue, then that's not a report that's of very good utility to me. So how much of the report is the ordering physician responsible for reading and understanding? All of it. All of it. You're responsible for all of it entirely. So you have to be aware that all of it has to be read. The comments, everything, is all your responsibility. You can't ever say, well, oh, I didn't read that. It was down in the comments. Doesn't matter. So what can you do to make a better diagnosis? Sometimes you can do levels or step sections. I just wanted to tell you what those are. Levels is just cutting deeper into the tissue to make sure that you're getting a representative biopsy. So you just cut deeper into the block of wax to make sure that the, the findings don't change. And sometimes you see something in levels, like here's a rule out non-melanoma skin cancer. This is level one. I see what's probably an actinic keratosis, but much of the epidermis has been transected in many areas. But I was still suspicious, so I go ahead and cut deeper into the block of tissue. I go cut deeper into the wax, and I find a basal cell carcinoma just barely over here at the edge. So one thing you'll always want to be making sure of is, is did people you know, perform levels? Is there any reason that I should ask them to? And where you find that is in the microscopic description. It says on one original slide and three other slides that represent step sections. Step sections are levels. So, so again, if you got an unexpected result, you might want to check the microscopic description and see did they, do, did they perform levels. And if they didn't, maybe you want to pick up the phone and say, hey, Dr. High, would you mind doing some levels? Any dermatopathologist worth their, their, their salt will say, absolutely not. I don't mind at 
all. Let me just go ahead and order those levels and I'll take, take, take a quick peek at them. If they resist or, or put pressure back on you, no, I don't think you need levels, I don't think that's a good idea, then you probably want to go ahead and switch laboratories because actually, after all, I work for you. I, I'm your client, I'm your consultant, not the other way around, you're my client. So, so uh, asking for levels should be greeted with open arms. And then there's use of stains and uh, immunostains and special stains. And we have special stains for organisms and we have immunostains that bind to certain epitopes and tell us that that's a melanocyte or tell us that that's a keratinocyte or something like that. And so here's an example of a case where it was a 79-year-old man and it was rule-out nub, neoplasma uncertain behavior, and that's all we knew about the lesion. Well, it looks a little bit like a benign lycoid keratosis or something, it looks like all this lycoid inflammation. But when we looked really closely, we thought we saw some things that looked like melanocytic nests. So we go ahead and get an immunostain for melanocytes, and we see all these pagetoid cells. So this ends up being melanoma in situ, but it's almost obscured entirely by the inflammatory infiltrate. We can barely see it at all. And so then we ask the patient what the, you know, what the lesion looks like, or we ask the clinician what the lesion looks like, and he says, oh, it's almost five centimeters across. So it's very obviously a melanoma. Um, but you can do immunostains for melanocytic lesions. You can look at things like the proliferative index. Here, this is a double stain. The red stain, uh, the red stain highlights melanocytes, and the brown stain highlights proliferating melanocytes. So it's a, a key 67 mart stain. And so you can tell what's a melanocyte because it's red, and then you can tell a melanocyte that's dividing because it has a brown nucleus. So this tells you immediately that this is a melanocytic process that's turning over rapidly. And so it helps establish that it's melanoma. It doesn't prove immutably we don't have a melanoma stain, but it tells us that this might very well be a melanoma. We have other things like HMB45 that marks melanocytes. And normal, in a normal nevus, HMB45 is lost the deeper you go in the tissue. Well, in melanoma, very often, HMB45 is retained. So that's a bad sign right there. So that's another way that we can support a diagnosis. And then the last thing is P16. P16 is a tumor suppressor protein that's very often lost in melanoma. So if something's lost P16 staining, it's more likely to be melanoma. It doesn't prove immutably that it is a melanoma. It just means that it's more likely to be a melanoma. So here's a P16 stain on a Spitz nevus, and its affirmative staining says that it's more likely to be a Spitz nevus than it is a melanoma. And you can find all those things in the pathology report. Uh, uh, you can find all those results down here. It says using appropriate positive and negative controls, the following special stains are performed. And so it describes them. And so if you, if you were really concerned, you might ask the person, are there any stains? Is there anything we can do to substantiate this diagnosis uh, better? And the dermatopathologist should usually be responsive and say, you know, there are a couple things we can do if the patient's interested uh, that might help us establish the, the diagnosis a little bit better. So then the last thing is to talk about is margins. So if you have a punch and a shave, uh, there, there's some uncertainty with regard to the margin because think if I diagnose, uh, 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 or if I have a punch biopsy that looks like this and I bisect it this way, I bisect it this way and look down upon the tissue, it looks like the margins are uninvolved. But if I take the same piece of tissue and I bisect it this way, then I correctly understand that the margins are, are involved. So this, the margins are uninvolved. Here the margins look involved, but in any case, it's the same specimen. Does everybody understand that? So again, a, a person making $14 an hour is going to change dramatically your result, whether they bisect the punch this way or bisect the punch that way. So it's very, very important to understand it's not your dermatopathologist who's making that call. It's somebody called a grocer who, who may or may not have a college degree, may or may not uh, uh, really understand the gravity of what they're doing, but it's the same specimen with a different outcome both ways. And then the last thing is an excision specimen. We already talked about this bread loaf technique, right? They take a, an excision specimen, they divide it into pieces, uh, kind of a bread loaf uh, technique, we call that. So Madison and I, my daughter and I, did a little experiment here, and she ate the result here. But uh, what we did was we imagined this lesion uh, that's shaped like this, uh, upon, the, uh, upon the top of the bread surface, and then we just pulled out random slices. So if you pull this random slice out, it looks like the tumor is out, right? Here's your margin, here's your margin, here's the tumor, everything looks good. You have a, a clear excision. But what if I happen to just randomly pull this piece out? Well, then it looks like I have one margin that's clear and one margin that's involved. 
So there's some randomness when you do bread loaf sections to the result. And again, that's why we want to know that the margins are well clear. We want to see nice wide margins because it tells us, well, gosh, if the margin's wide here, then it's probably wide all the way around and everything's good. Um, but that's really one limitation in bread loaf sections. So you should understand that and be able to, to conceptualize that in your mind and explain it to patients because it, it may someday be the reason why something that was called, quote, excised actually recurred or something like that. You tell the patient, well, you know, the, the doctor's only looking at a tiny amount of the overall lesion and that's why, why the result is the way it is. Okay, guys. On to the next.